Hello and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Sonia, one of the founders of the festival, and today I'm delighted to be introducing the wonderful Dame Fiona Kidman. Fiona has never shied away from the big topics, both on and off the page. She has a deep interest in social justice and telling the story of outsiders. Fiona reflects on the causes she has taken up over her career, from her feminist writings in the 70s and 80s, to telling the tragic tale of Albert Black, one of the last people to be executed in this country, in this mortal boy. This conversation was recorded at the 2021 Marlborough Book Festival, an annual weekend of wonderful writers and curious audiences in beautiful Marlborough. We are currently working on plans for this year's festival and we are excited to share more details with you very soon. For now, please enjoy Dame Fiona Kidman speaking with Jane Forrest Waghorn. Um, I have a great pleasure in leading this discussion this afternoon or initiating the beginning of it. Well, I was saying to um, Fiona that I have never, ever had the privilege of hanging out with the Dame. <laughs> and Dame Fiona was saying that she has been a dame for 20 years. She is quite a dame. Um, and I don't really mean that disrespectfully, I mean it with the greatest of respect. To be awarded for the, her services to literature is impressive, to say the least, for us here. Um, she has a large body of work, you know, over 30 books um, that are novels, poetry, collections of essays, memoir, an amazing body of work over a very long time. She has not only taught creative writing, she initiated a creative writing course. She has been a participant in the literary life of New Zealand for many, many years. Um, and across all media, not just in writing, in, in writing for television, in writing for radio, um, she is multi-skilled. And, um, and in fact, I think your first published work was a play? That's right, yes. yes. Search for Sister Blue. Yes, yes. yep. Um, and of course, for me personally, um, the most important thing is that she was once upon a time a librarian. <laughs> um, as I was too. Um, so, Dame Fiona, welcome. Welcome to Marlborough. Welcome here today. Um, and we're going to talk about the stories of social history. When I started reading your work and looking, which sort of interestingly has been over the period because Dame Fiona was, she first came to Marlborough at our inaugural book festival in 2014. Um, I think that was with Infinite Air. Yes, You'd just written that um, or was were um, promoting that. Um, but you were going to come to the festival last year when we were all confined to home. So I have had a lovely year of reading and rereading some of Fiona's work. And the biggest thing that I was struck by is that she tells our stories of New Zealand. She has chronicled our social history. And it occurred to me that I hadn't really seen that um, before. And it's an extraordinary thing. And I think we should be very grateful for that. So she's written stories from Betty Gard in the Marlborough Sounds and the Captive Wife through to these more recent times. Um, and so I want to look at some of those stories and ask you some things. Hi. Um, so I suppose the first thing I really want to ask you is what gives you that lens that you're drawn to telling those stories? Right. Well, Tana Koto and Katoa, uh, it's good to see you all, and thank you so much for inviting me here to the festival, and thank you to the wonderful sponsors. And uh, before I answer that, could I just say that 
the rest of our conversation was about me being a dame was that I've been a dame for so long that I've sort of forgotten that I ever Ooh. was and I prefer to be called Fiona so if you're having a conversation with me please call me Fiona um, and it's, some, it's an honour I'm, I'm very proud of but you know I don't sort of um, live being a dame day, day by day it's one of those things anyway how, did, how do I come to thinking about social justice um, I grew up as a fairly solitary child um, in the far north of New Zealand. Um, at the end of World War II, my parents went up to Kirikiri. Um, my father had had a not a very good war, but then who did? Uh, he and my mother and I went up north. I was an only child. Um, we got a piece of land in, um, in this little town, and it was um, a strange little town. Well, if people, anyone here from Kirikiri may say, I don't like you saying that very much. Um, it's a delightful town in many respects, but in those days at the end of World War II, it was very much a Raj town. It was settled, people see the, um, the, the mission, the, the, the old stone store and the Kemp house and so forth, and they think of the missionaries and they think that's the history of Kirikiri. But Kirikiri had a later history, which is a lot less known, and that at the end of the 1930s, it was, um, a, there was a settlement that was very much, very drawn from people who'd been in the Raj, um, people from China and Shanghai, who'd settled there and hoped to make an ideal settlement. There were some very nice people there, but there was also a good deal of um, upper-class servantry um, and um, an attitude toward they had a lot of them had wanted to come to a very nice climate. They didn't want to go to, back to Britain after the um, uh, Sino-Japanese uh, wars. They wanted to find some place where they could create this ideal settlement and they could have servants. So it was into this environment that my parents landed at the end of uh, 1945, and by a series of accidents, which I won't really explain all here, they, they became servants in this environment. And I was known as a servant's little girl. And that was quite unsettling. I'd had a really happy cut time during the war with my grandparents in Morrinsville in the Waikato. And I had been special and loved and... I was still loved in Kirikiri by my parents, but I was definitely considered an outsider. I had a best friend there, and I think one of her friends is in the audience here, Eugenie, if you're here. But my friend was called Madeline, and we we were, be were best friends and still are best friends some 75 years later. Um, and in some ways, I see her life as being... Um, on the outside too, for reasons that are her story, and I won't dwell on them here, but mine was very much as somebody who was an outsider. So I think that um, I, I, was a, I started to observe the world apart from this friendship. I had very few friends, and it was, as I say, quite isolated. I started to watch and observe people very closely, and I was very, it was very clear to me that there was a great class divide. We talk here in New Zealand about there not being um, a class, class divisions. That's not true. And um, there was my father, who was an Irishman. Um, he'd come and settled here and had served in the, in the war. But as an Irishman, he was sort of different and on the outside. There was the Raj group of people who drank gin slings and, um, and jitterbugged literally away their lives and did subsistence farming, which as we did too, eventually we did have a little place. Um, there was the Māori community, which were right out there in this environment. And there was the Dalmatian community, which was another community Again, so from this position, I suppose, this situation, I had the opportunity start, to start observing the world from a very early age. 
So I remember reading something about how you learnt to read. Oh, yes. Yes, I had to go to hospital um, when I was six, um, and then again when I was seven. The hospital was some, um, oh, I think about 25 miles away, and my parents didn't have a car. So I was there for several weeks in the first instance, and I was six years old. And we had a visiting school teacher who came around and, you know, oversaw kids like me. And she said, oh, you're six, and how's your reading? I said, oh, I can't read yet, because I didn't start school till I was six. And she said, oh, that's terrible. She said, um, we better teach you to read. So um, we spent the afternoon learning to read, and I thought, that's, that's great, now I can read. <laughs> so you must have been quite literate beforehand. I mean, you'd be, you, like, although your parents were working as servants, you came from a home where there were books, where people read oh, to yes. you? Oh, yes, both my parents. I mean, this is what was particularly difficult for us, was that my, my, they, weren't, they weren't educated in the sense that um, people talk about education now in an academic environment, but, but they were both people from... My mother was from a very learned Scots family, and my father was from... A, from a, the Irishman was um, from... He, he, had, he, he absorbed books through, you know, his, he, he breathed them through his nostrils, really. He was a great reader. So that, that, that was... Um, I suppose... I, and both my parents were storytellers, um, the next week or so, a couple of weeks later, the teacher came round and she said, oh, that, that's, that's pretty good, you know, because I was getting books out of the library and so forth. She said, I think we'd better teach you to write this week. And so I thought, oh, that's fantastic. So we wrote a letter. I said, I want to write a letter to my parents. So I wrote a letter that said, Dear Mum and Dad, how is my cat? I miss you. Please come and get me. And she posted it off, and lo and behold, a couple of days later, my parents arrived and took me home. And I thought, that's it. Writing works. <laughs> so from there is that little six-year-old learning to write and to read. You are interesting in the sense that you had a really clear vision of yourself as a writer, didn't you? I did from a pretty early age. Yeah. And perhaps just returning to the friend Madeline, what we did together, she was from a... Her, her background was a father who wasn't present, but he was a, quite a well-known painter of his time. And she paints, was painted and drew. And so what we used to do in the um, in the summer holidays was to make a journal together. She would do beautiful copper plate writing and draw the pictures and we would both tell the stories and make up the poems. So that was, that was we did have a very clear sense of our destiny. Did you keep them? She did, and I have copies of them, yes. Right. yes. So that but I mean the stories now, oh God, <laughs> yes, I, w I think I think there's a copy in the Turnbull. But if anybody ever looks at it, it'll be after my death. <laughs> um, so, I suppose we should come to the books that are. I, I wondered if we could sort of go backwards in a way, and that I, I mean, one of the things that I'm really I wonder about too is there's quite a task when you're writing about a real person, isn't there? Um, probably Albert has no comeback, really, except he does have a descendant. Um, but when you're writing about real people um, in history, at times that's quite controversial, isn't it? I, I was thinking when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Kate Grenville in Australia when she wrote The Secret River. She mm. got taken to task mm. for retelling the history in a way that it wasn't perceived by some people. And even Hilary Mantel had the same thing mm. when she um, started looking at, at the Tudors as well. Um, and I wonder if, if that influences, changes your approach when you're dealing with a real person and how you deal with it. Hmm. That's an interesting question. You know, I, I, um, when I started writing fiction, 
everybody assumed that I was writing about myself. And that was quite troubling at times. Um, I got me into all sorts of trouble because people assumed that I was simply putting my whole sordid life out there and for everybody to devour. Um, I got a bit weary of that, and so I decided to to write about other people um, instead. That I but but that I could bring my my own heart to, if you like, uh, my own imagination to. And you know, I haven't actually had a huge amount of controversy over the people. The only one that I got into serious trouble with was the Book of Secrets, mm. which is based on the story of the Nova Scotian migration to Waipu. After we lived in Kirikiri, we moved to Waipu, which is a Nova Scotian settlement to the south of Whangarei. And that was, um, that was a wonderful time. It was what actually happened, sorry to just digress for a That's moment, good. but what actually happened was that my father's inherited money from Ireland, from, the, from his aunts, and we were suddenly able to buy a farm and move away and make a fresh start, which was a very, very happy time in, in our lives, a wonderful time in our lives. And we had this wee farm here, but it was settled by, as I say, by Nova Scotians, and it was led by a charismatic um, Presbyterian minister called Norman MacLeod, the Reverend Norman MacLeod, and he had very tight control over the lives of women and very stern attitudes towards women and what they were allowed to do and not to, to do. Um, and there was a woman living in the, um, in the village, near the village of Waipu, who lived alone and had been said to live alone for over 50 years, and she, she didn't come out. She was called the witch by some people, something which would lately later be hotly contested when I wrote a novel based on the migration and put her as a, as a central character, or so it was perceived. I wasn't actually, I was asked not to come back to the community for 20 years. Goodness. And I, I was, the, they have a lovely little museum, if any of you have travelled up there, there's a, a fine little museum there, which... Um, if anybody came, and they did come in their droves to to Waipu because they were interested in the story, they'd read the Book of Secrets, and they wanted to, you know, they wanted to exchange ideas about this, and the museum would close. Really? Oh, yeah. It's yeah, extraordinary, isn't it? However, I have to say that it was later the museum, there were some younger people came there, and they they invited me back. They wanted to have a dinner of reconciliation. And Which did you have it? We did. We had it on a um, just after New Year, um, one glorious evening with stars in the sky on a cliff top under a marquee with about 200 people there. They spit roasted lambs on the beach beneath us and brought them oh. up to the up the hill on quad bikes. And we had this dinner, and I spoke, and they said, "You belong to us. This is always your home." And it's, it is still it is still in my heart. It's my Taranga Waiwai. That's an amazing story in itself. I would have to say that the Book of Secrets also won, and I have to get because the names of the awards change. Um, so that won the New Zealand Book Award, didn't yes, it? it did. in, in 1987. I think so. I forget. Yes, it's, I've, I've got it. I've, Mr. Wikipedia helped me with that. Okay, thing. okay. Um, you right. Yes. I, uh, well, yes. Um, so that's really interesting. So that's an example of a... Of a, a controversy. A controversy. Yeah. Who knew? That's an amazing story. It's amazing. So how did you pick Albert Black? Should we talk about Albert? Should we talk about this mortal boy? Yeah, sure. Okay, okay. right. All right, we'll start so, with him. And yeah, then... okay, okay. Albert is... Um, I've, I have had a long, um, a long opposition to the death penalty. I, it's something that... I don't know how you come to certain beliefs, but it, from a very young age I, I had the belief that the death penalty was wrong. And I also had a theme running through my head, which is about young men. I have the good fortune to have five grandsons. They're all grown-up men and they're all fine men who are doing well in their lives. 
But as, and I had a lot to do with them as they grew up, very close to me, very close to my heart. And I, but as they were growing up, you know, I could see things happening to young men. And I kept thinking, what if one of them made a mistake? What if one of them made a terrible mistake? Because it seemed to me that, well, it seems and still seems to me, that a lot of the young men who get into some, some terrible trouble, that they're not all bad people, that they're young people who've just had that, that momentary madness of growing up, adolescence, craziness. I kept thinking, you know, please God or whoever's up there, please look after these boys. And so far, they, they, they're good. So, but uh, I, I thought I'd like to write a book about, you know, the boy who makes a, a mistake. And then one day I picked up a newspaper and there was a story of Albert Black, who was known as the jukebox killer in the newspapers. And as a, a sort of one of those looking back stories. And I thought, yes, actually, I remember that. And maybe who knows whether that was what had an influence on, on the death penalty. I was 15 at the time. Right. And, um, and I thought, oh, okay. And there were various things that sort of came together in my head. There was... He was a, a Protestant boy from Belfast in the north of Ireland. There was um, my father was a Protestant I Irishman, um, immigrant Irishman. Albert was a, 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 a ten-pound pom, as they called them. My father was a ten-bob pom. Um, there were all of these things that came together, and I thought, I know this boy. I know this boy. He's the boy who made the mistake. And so I decided to, to, to write it and to research it. So it started as an, a, a, I mean, you have been, a, a, you have talked about feeling that he should have been convicted. Of, I mean, he did commit a murder, but it was a manslaughter rather than a premeditated murder. Is, would that be I believe I believe that, a, that it was manslaughter. I've done a huge amount of research, and um, I, I believe that it was, um, the circumstances are such that I believe that it was a case of self-defence, that he seriously believed that he was going to die, that he was going to be killed by Alan Jacques, who was... Um, who was uh, so Albert had come out as a, as a, a ten-pound pom when he was 18. He'd barely turned 20 when he came to New Zealand as an assistant immigrant. And all his record was very clean. And he had um, lived with a family in, in the Hutt Valley near Wellington. Um, he'd been gentle, hardworking, enjoyed the kids there, had a pet hedgehog, cried when it died, all of these, you know, all of the things that say this kid was an okay kid. And I, I mean, as one of the, that family has, has been one of my informants. He moved to Auckland. He got in, in with a, a crowd of kids that we called in those days bodgies and widgies. Mm. You know, bodgies with their stovepipe um, trousers and their winkle pinker, winkle picker shoes, but like the ones I'm wearing. Uh, only mine are green for Ireland. <laughs> and, um, you know, he, and, and the widgies wore tight sweaters on their cardigan or maybe their cardigans back to front and whirl bras and you know all of these things and they hung out around milk bars and so forth. Albert went to Ye Old Barn Cafe in Upper Queen Street in Auckland. He got in with this crowd. He had been given a boarding house in Wellesley Street to caretake mm. and he wasn't supposed to have anybody there. Well, look, to cut a very long story short, it is a long story, he and this boy, Alan Jacques, who called himself Johnny McBride after a character in a Mickey Spillane novel, um, which Mickey Spillane was very violent, wrote very violent novels, either jury and so forth. I remember the head boy at Waipu District High sliding me a copy of either jury when I was in the fifth form fourth form, I think. So they're really ugly books. But anyway, that's, that's, an, that's another digression. Um, yeah. Um, Alan Jacques was a child migrant. In the 1950s, um, 
the United Kingdom was sending child migrants who'd been in their orphanages or um, during the war. They had children who were orphaned by the war or abandoned by their parents or put in these institutions and shipped in their hundreds, well thousands if you take in the whole commonwealth, but hundreds to New Zealand. And this boy had come, They had the kids had no option, they just had to go. This boy had had to come because he was, it was kids under the age of 18, he'd come at the age of 17 because his sisters had been sent out. So he was told he had to go to be with them. He was very bitter, he wanted to go back to, um, to, to the UK and he assumed this persona of Johnny McBride, this violent Mickey Spillane character. He went to stay in the boarding house with Albert. Albert had started having parties and had fallen off the wagon a bit and he had people, young people going there. There was a, a party, there was a violent argument and Albert got very badly beaten up by Alain Jacques or um, Johnny McBride, as you will, um, and the next day, and Johnny McBride said he was going to kill him, Albert took a, a knife to arm himself because Johnny McBride carried a knife um, and, and was violent, and so he took a knife. He saw Alan Jacques, and Alan Jacques again said he was going to finish him off and kill him, and Albert pulled the knife because he thought he was going to die. And the result was that he was hanged for murder. Yeah. It's an amazing um, time, isn't it? it Again, that, uh, that snapshot of, of looking at the society in New Zealand yes. at that time um, and of the, the way these very young men are, are dealing with becoming adult men and, yeah. and the sort of toxicity of it, really, um, and the damage to those children. Uh, I think that's the... You feel this deep sadness for the brutal way they were treated. Absolutely. And, of course, overall, through the, through the 1950s, there was this very strong um, moral crusade. Yeah. It was um, the... the um, Sid Holland, the, the leader of the national government, had gone into power in 1949 um, saying that he would break the power of the unions and bring back the death penalty. So there was a great wave of hanging that went on. But I wonder if we could just have a quick look at Albert. And, yes. And, and, and so that's, that's this boy who was hanged at the age of 20. Um, there were five hangings in Mount Eden Jail, all of young men and mostly of migrants or Maori people in, in 1955, the year that this lovely boy, I mean, I think he is, yeah, yeah um, was killed. He looks like he could be the head boy of Waipu College, really. He, do, he does, yes, yes. Yeah. But, so that's him, and this is, this is Alan Shark or Johnny McBride. Um, so he was, yeah. What happened to him? What happened to them? To his, did he, after he was killed, yeah. did, was he perceived in the, sort of, as the victim, or has that yeah, ever been? Yes, well, yes, yes, he, it's hard to explain. Um, what happened when in the, in the cafe was that, uh, that Albert made this blow, which was perceived as being quite a light blow initially, um, but a fluke because it just happened to hit on a particular spinal cord. But Albert went out and went straight to the police station and said, I've done, I've, I've, I've stabbed somebody, I didn't mean to, but I've done this thing. And the young men, the young bodgies who were in the milk bar, rolled Alan Shark over onto his back and the knife went through him at that stage and came out the other side of his nose and there was blood everywhere and panic Goodness. and confusion. And so what happened then was that these young people then said that, you know, that, it, that nothing had happened, there hadn't been an altercation in the, 
in the in the cafe at all. They'd seen nothing. Nothing had happened. I, my view is that they were afraid that they were going to be blamed for the death of Alan Sharp. Right. So, so uh, that you know, it all they were trying to do was do their best. But um, anyway, um, yep, that's. Yeah, I, I suppose when you were talking about the treatment of them, I was thinking about the jury as well, oh, because yes. that's an amazing um, group of men, isn't it? It, it? Or collection of the different types of men and, and a, a really big comment on society in New Zealand in a way um, at yeah. that time and the way things operated. And the prejudices and the class. The prejudices and the class, and and the the desire to to sort young people out. And uh, I, I agree. Yes. Yeah. As a, just going back to Mickey Spillane, I think that's also really in the commission into sorting out these young people and the book burning. I mean, it, it, it's not something that we think of as being part of the history of New Zealand, is no, it? No, it's not. It's, it's, it's a sort of almost a forgotten part. But when you talk about the Mazengarb report, which Sid Holland commissioned it from Oswald Mazengarb, who was his mate, um, they used to do magic tricks. They're both into magic tricks, and they used to go and visit each other for dinner and they, things. And so Holland, Sid Holland got Mazengarb to write this report about how promiscuous teenagers were and how they were, there was heavy petting in theatres in the Hutt Valley and how girls were having sex. Well, I guess they were boys having sex too, I think. They were. Yeah. <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were having sex on the banks of the Hutt River and there was terrible stuff going on. And this is in this report was sent out to every family that received the family benefit in New Zealand. So my parents got a got the Mason Garb report that said, be careful, kids are terrible, they have to be brought into line. And so when the judge summed up, or no, this is not quite correct, sorry, there was two juries in the 1950s. One was a grand jury which met informally um, before the case went to the common jury, as it was called in those days. And the Grand jury was just, they're not the same jury. They'd meet a couple of days beforehand and they'd decide whether this case should go forward. The presiding judge was the judge in both cases. And what he said to the grand jury was not supposed to be reported in the newspapers. It was to, not to be reported until after the, the common jury had met and the um, and a verdict had been given. But what he said was, this is not one of our people. Yes. We're sorry that we should never have had him. He should be sent back to his homeland. We don't like this. In effect, we don't like Irishmen. Send yeah. them back home. We don't want his sort. Mm? That we don't want his sort in That's New Zealand. We don't want his sort in New Zealand. Yeah. Which is interesting because I'll just come to it in a moment. But what happened was that the newspapers, the Auckland Herald and the Auckland Star, both did report it, and the newspapers were delivered to the jury the night before the trial started. And so you had a prejudiced case. I mean, regardless of whether he ended up guilty of murder or, or of manslaughter, whichever take your choice based on the evidence, um, he had a prejudiced judge and a prejudiced jury, and mm. nothing is more clear than that. Yeah. And as a result, this 20-year-old boy was hanged. Yeah. And that, that, that breaks my heart. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and so I'll just sort of digress for a moment there and say, in terms of the Irish, there's probably quite a lot of you in, the, in this audience because... I'm associated at present with the Irish Studies Department at Otago University, and they have done a survey which suggests that there are over 600,000 Irish descendants in New Zealand. Yeah. yeah, and we were talking before, and I am, I am one of those. Yes. And my grandfather was yeah. from Donegal, and my grandmother from yeah. Port Rush. And my, so my, my these, granny was O'Hara yeah. from Bandon County Cork. Yeah, so 
I mean, there's so many things that I want to talk to you about, but I can't because we're going to. I also want to talk about um, some of the other things. But Albert Black, um, he did hang. He was convicted. He is drawn very beautifully in the book. And I also want to pay tribute to the women that are drawn very beautifully in that book. Um, to the mother in the lower hut. I mean, she's an extraordinary young mother doing the best she can, isn't she, yeah, in the midst of this? And and his his mother. I know. I mean, Kathleen she, brings a tear to my heart. Yeah, such a strong um, woman fighting against. Well, it was futile, wasn't it? She gathered twelve a petition. To, for, to pleading for Albert's life um, that gathered 12,000 signatures in a, in a week. Remember, this is pre-digital. For most of the residents of Belfast, it was, pre, it was pre-telephone. I, as far as I can gather, it was done through the mills because there, I think she was a mill worker and Albert had worked in the mills before he came to New Zealand. So, I mean, that's extraordinary. She wrote to the Queen and said, mother to mother, and said, as a mother, you know, I mean, this is still within the reign of, of, of our current Queen, so it's not that far away. And said, you know, can you do anything to help my, with my son? I think probably the Queen was quite distracted that week because it was the week that her sister, Princess Margaret, was being called upon to renounce Peter Townsend as a future oh, husband. Right. so she was distracted. So, yeah, I think she mightn't have actually. She probably didn't read the letter. Maybe she read the letter. Who knows? Yeah. It's fascinating, too, that the, I think the other thing we should say is the death penalty was reinstated. I mean, it wasn't that it had been there the whole time. So this had been brought back by good old gentleman Jack. And, I mean, I remember... Jack Marshall, and I, I mean, I think for a lot of us reading that book, it was a shock. It is a shock, but what I would say is that Jack Marshall was a man of genuine belief. This is what he believed. I know it comes across pretty harshly in the book, and I think it was harsh. I accept that it was his true belief. In a sense, more than I do Sid Holland. Sid Holland, I, I felt, was a, a, a crusading a morals crusader for, um, you know, for votes. I think that Jack Marshall believed that, you know, he was not long back from the war and how men made these decisions and believe, came to their beliefs. I think, he, I think that was what he truly believed was right. Mm. But, um, and he did some good things. But uh, he did have a lot more steel than his, you know, Gentleman yeah. Jack had... Yeah, was, interesting. Yeah. Um, before we leave, Albert, because I just want to also um, talk about the. Uh, I wondered if you would read a little bit. Yep. Okay. For I did have that marked, oh, and it's over. Have you? Over is there. it no, over there? I know where Can it you is. find it? I know where it is. Yes, I'll go straight to it. Because I'm going straight to it, it'll probably perhaps be a, a harder part than. Well, this is the last. This is the end, near the end of the book. Um, Father Downey is the person who, um, at the end of um, at the end of Albert's life, he converted to Roman Catholicism. He was a Protestant boy, almost certainly, I think, because of the girl who was carrying his child and who was born three months after his death. Um, and he was supported in his decision to to turn to Catholicism by Father Downey, who was a well-known priest in Auckland. Um, well, I'll just, I'll just read from this part here. The party assembles along one wall facing the scaffold. There is a wind that evening, a noisy, buffeting wind that lifts the canvas like a ship's sail in a storm. The scaffold is a high steel structure with a platform reached by way of 17 steps. Around the supports at the bottom of the gallows, canvas has been lashed to conceal the space beneath. The whole scene is lit by a powerful electric light. The light shines on the white rope coiled beneath the gallows and on the noose hanging over the trap. 
The hangman stands waiting at the back of the platform, his back to the observers. Albert appears, led by his guards. He doesn't walk along the polished corridor. Rather, he shuffles because his body is harnessed by broad leather straps. The straps are crossed around his arms at the elbows, his crossed hands strapped in front of him, and his legs pinioned above the knee. In some ways he resembles a log of wood or a five-foot-eight tree stump. To further ensure that his body is as rigid as it can possibly be made, he wears a stiff canvas coat and a pair of heavy boots provided by the prison. He ascends the stairs slowly, and the hangman turns to meet him. In the bright light, Father Downey sees that the hangman is dressed in a felt hat pulled low over his brow, sunglasses hiding his eyes. His chin is sunk in the collar of a long top coat buttoned all the way up the front. Albert is facing Horace Hayward, the superintendent. Have you anything to say, Black? Hayward asks. Albert turns and looks down on those assembled beneath him. In a grave voice, he answers, I wish you all a Merry Christmas, gentlemen, and a prosperous New Year. That Thank is you. what actually happened. Yeah. Um, and what you actually um, brought it up, you, it, because you not only have written about things, you're an activist. You like to, to try and make thing change happen, don't you? I guess I do. Yes. And what happened when you tried to get Albert's case looked at? Oh, okay. Um, well, that's interesting because it's an ongoing situation. Um, in fact, um, um, well, what, actually, what has actually happened last year was that I was approached by somebody in the Court of Appeal, who um, very high up, and I won't name him, who said that he'd read the book and he felt that there was a grave injustice done and that it was never too late for justice to be seen to be done. And he invited me to go to the Court of Appeal and do a seminar with um, all the Court of Appeal, Appeal judges in New Zealand and all the judge and several Supreme Court judges. And we did that. And um, I was assisted in that by a man called Red Majeska, who's been a great help to me in, in writing this book and a great support person. And there has been a lot of interest shown, and I really can't sort of divulge all that's going yeah. on, but there are, there are two lawyers, two Irish, New Zealand-based Irish lawyers who are now working pro bono to see whether it might be returned to the Court of Appeal. We don't know whether, um, uh, because it's posthumous, there are certain legal precedents being invited in, in, looked at and we, we, I can't, I'm not prepared to, to um, predict what might happen. happen. I can only hope. Yeah. I um, wanted to bring up that about your activism because one of the other things that has become really apparent to me um, in reading your essays <coughs> and um, I've got this beautiful collection of books here that are from the library um, and it's a great pleasure to be able to to sneak around the other areas of, of your writing as well and how great they are. Um, so these are a collection of, of some of them are about the writing life, about feminism, about growing older, and I'd recommend them to anybody to go and have a look. Um, and I think it just contributes to this um, incredible body of work. Um, and I found that really interesting. I found the feminism and um, the the... It's like you were always a feminist. And it's such an interesting word because I think that for a while uh, people were, weren't identifying themselves as a feminist because they'd forgotten that there had been a journey to get to that point. And um, 
that was why I wanted to talk about this book a little bit we as well. We all day at the movies, yeah. Yeah, because I think it deals, it chronicles um, a lot of those issues for women in New Zealand. And, of course, now we've only got a little bit of time. So in, in a short time, I thought there was something I read. I'm just going to read it. Um, where you talk about accidental feminism. This isn't a role I'd sort of deliberately planned. What I wanted was to be a writer, always that. But so often I was writing about women's lives and about poor and disadvantaged women. I couldn't help but notice inequality and make more than a few and more than a few times in my life I felt I had been disadvantaged by being a woman myself. So I wondered if you could just touch on this for us mm. and tell us about what that means to you and and sum up the history of feminism in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> Please. <laughs> As a writer, I think, I, I mean, I, I, have, I have not suffered the abuse that one of the women in All Day at the Movies has experienced, but I have been very close to somebody who has. Um, and I, I, I wanted to write a book this is a fairly recent book of mine, and I wanted to um, write, uh, you, as one gets older, and I'm 81 now, and I, uh, you don't know how many books there are left in you, you hope, but, but time hurries on by, and I wanted to write a book in which I tried to say to women of New Zealand that it was possible to be equal, that it was possible to overcome obstacles, it was possible to be loved even when love seemed absent. And so that's what All Day at the Movies is about a family of women who have different different experiences and it doesn't turn out well for all of them. For me as a writer, I, I haven't, I mean, when I, I if I seem say that I seem disadvantaged, it was certainly as a writer trying to make my way in the 1970s. Um, New Zealand literature had been very much dominated by men and not all of them were unkind. In fact, I had a number of strong, good male mentors in the 1970s, people in radio drama, people in television, people who, um, the playwright Bruce Mason, who was um, a great mentor to me. Um, personal mentor to me but there's also a group of the old boys who talked about the minstrel school of writing and, and dismissed um, our work and who sent back editors who sent back scathing notes to um, you know it, it, th there was some quite unpleasant stuff that went on and I mean because I've been an observer of women's lives for a long time I've seen these things happening too and I just decided that I wanted to kind of get the essence of of of, of what I, I believed how we should have equality and you know um, in fact women's writing is very equal these days. If mm. look out as an audience of um, I, I spoke at a, a conference for the New Zealand Society of Authors just recently and the majority of us are women these days. Uh, so it's not about wanting to be more or better, or it's about wanting to be equal. I can't, I can't see how, how it doesn't make sense that we should ask for equal um, opportunity in uh, the, the workforce, to have equal access to health care, equal access to education. I think, you know, I think in many ways we've come a long way. <clears throat> Thank you, and I wish we could sit for another hour and and talk about it more because there are so many fun things. But I have to, I have a promise to ask you if you would like the opportunity to ask Fiona. Yes, Rachel. Sorry, you're blinded by the light. Thank you. That was really interesting. Fiona, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the risks and rewards advantages and disadvantages of writing fiction about real people, um, getting inside their heads and inventing dialogue um, and scenes. Okay, so the question was about getting inside people's, people's heads. heads. Yes. Okay. And real people, when real. you're writing about real people. Yeah, 
I think I, I've always enjoyed writing dialogue. Um, I've spent a good few, year, good many years writing for um, radio drama. Um, that was my big break in the 1970s. Was um, working as as a, a radio dramatist, and um, you had to um, you had to be a good listener. I've, I mean, I talk a lot, but I also try and listen to people. And I think again, going back to my rather solitary childhood, where I listen, where watching and listening came naturally to me, or seemed to be part of my environment. I remember I had a, a, a splendid um, um, editor, script editor in radio drama in the 1970s, an Englishman called, who'd come out from the BBC called Arthur Jones. And Arthur said to me, um, Fiona, when you listen to, di to, to people talking to each other, when you write dialogue, he said, it's actually what you really need to listen to is the silences. It's what, what happens in between what people say that's, that's actually matters. And I, he also said to me that in radio, he pointed out that we had a limited number of ways to convey, um, to convey what, we were, what we wanted to say in our plays. We had, um, we had words, we had music, we had sound effects. And he said, and don't forget the silences. So I guess um, trying to sense what, what What's going on in people's minds when they speak is what is something that's always interested me. And I, I do enjoy writing dialogue. Um, I don't write, um, I don't believe in writing in, in dialect because I think that can be very phony in a, in a piece of uh, writing. It's very hard to sustain dialect and it makes, it sounds as if you're sending people, quite often as if you're sending people up. So I do straight dialogue, but I um, I try and put little inflections in. So you know you might have in this mortal boy, for instance, uh, he Albert will refer to his da as not his dad, um, and I just I I just I just think about what it's like to be that person. I mean, when I wrote my novel about the infinite ear about Jean Batten. I, I, I thought a lot about her up in the air at nights with just a torch to guide her plane and a compass to guide her, her across the vast oceans. And she'd write in her logbook, very lonely up here. And I think, you know, there are times in my life when I felt like that. And so I felt, I feel like Jean, and I don't want to sound kind of mad or crazy, although I probably am both of them. <laughs> but um, I, when, I go, when, I, when I'm writing a, deep in a piece of fiction, I take my characters for walks with me. They stand beside me at the, 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 um, at the bench and, um, you know, they write, um, they talk to me. <laughs> you know, we, talk, we have conversations with each other. And eventually they'll um, eventually they'll go away. Yeah. Have you got that little book of poems of mine that had? Oh no, you don't. No, I ha I haven't. No. I was going to write read a little poem called Hey You, but it's. Do you want me to get it? Is it oh, over no, there? Oh no, look, it doesn't matter. It's okay. I'm sure we. Are there any other questions? Yes. You might, might, if you can. Can hear you it, come you might, up a little yes, bit? Because I'm sorry, I'm de I'm quite deaf. Fiona, um, have you met other feminist, feminist writers like Germaine <coughs> Greer who wrote the female unit? Can you recommend any feminist writers yourself? He's asking for recommendations of feminist writers. Have you met Germaine Greer? Oh yes, I have met Germaine Greer, and I actually marched down the, the down Lambton Quay in I don't know about 1972 to defend her right to say fuck without being put in prison. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yes, I mean, it, it, I mean, how you define um, feminism and feminist writers varies. Back in the 
back in those those days, there was Germaine Greer and there was Betty Friedan and so forth. But I mean, you come back into through time. You've got writers like Angela, the magnificent Angela Carter, and Margaret Atwood. And yes. I mean, Margaret Atwood is a contemporary feminist writer, and I bet a lot of you watch Netflix and The Handmaid's Tale yeah. and so forth. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it it depends on where you're standing at that time. I, I've never perceived myself as, as some sort of wild radical, although I, other people have perceived me that way at, at a particular time. And in indeed life. they did when you wrote The Breed of Women, when didn't they? When I wrote they? A Breed of Women, which was about women's lives. And that was cons- I was considered a raving radical because I dared to talk about women enjoying having sexual intercourse. You know, it was really bad. We had a bad time in our house over that book, I have to say. <laughs> I mean, we'd go to parties and we'd have people coming up, me and chaps sidling up to my husband and saying, uh, who's she having it off with now? <laughs> That's amazing. How's her drinking, old chap? Yeah. You, know, you know, because the, the character in that, I, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm an alcoholic, so I do like a good glass of uh, Pinot Gris. But, you yeah. know, I mean, the woman in, has, you know, everything was perceived as me. That, that, that's what I think I started out by saying. Yeah. Yeah. So it was safer to do anyone else. Has anybody else got a question? Because these are good questions. Did you put your hand up? No? Okay. Um, well, I think... That can I read the little bit about Margaret Atwood? Or would you like to read it? Oh no, you read it by, by all means. I hope yes. I've got the right. So this is from. Um, I'm going to give it to you. Can oh. I please give it to you to read? Okay. I hope I can find it now. I might not. Have, is it in that one or this one? I don't. I don't remember it. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it's, it's this one here. Okay. So you don't have to do this. You have to read the bit about the duck. Okay, okay. Please. Okay. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sitting in, in a balcony in, in Greece. I have been sitting on the balcony reading and admiring Margaret Atwood's Negotiating with the Dead, a writer on writing. She talks about going down into the darkness to write a novel, and she's honest about the role money plays in a writer's life, berating a certain pretension in those who make out that it's not important. Get yourself a patron, she, su- she suggests. I married mine. <laughs> Ian signed up for a life of patronage without ever suspecting what he was letting himself in for. And Atwood makes me laugh out loud when she quotes an epigram that is tacked to her office bulletin board. Wanting to meet an author because you like his work is like wanting to meet a duck because you like pate. <laughs> <laughs> They are always more ordinary than you expect, she writes. And prickly too, I think, remembering my own rather awkward meetings with her. <laughs> in order for the pate to be made and then eaten, the duck must, be, must first be killed, she adds. And who is that that does the killing, I think? Well, that's fair enough. I'm her reader, and she didn't have to make a friend, make me a friend, and I like her better with this honesty and self and wry self-awareness. I, on the other hand, tend to like meeting my readers, even go out of my way to do so. But perhaps if I had as many as she did, I might be more wary. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> I wanted, uh, the, just as I was packing up my books, to come um, off my dining room table, I turned this book over and it says at the bottom, a beautiful writer, The Times. And I think we can all say that it's been an enormous pleasure and I privilege to have you here and to share your stories. Um, you're an inspiration and thank you for your writing and for your activism. Thank you. Can I just say, thank you, Jane, for being a wonderful interlocutor. Thank you for being a wonderful audience. And thank you again, Marlborough, for inviting me here. And now we can show our appreciation by 
going out and purchasing her books. Um, and Fiona will be available for signing them. And I would just like to take one moment to berate, not berate, encourage all of you. Um, I am on the committee for, um, I'm a member of the Friends of the Library. And the library is at this crucial, exciting moment where we have this amazing new building rising up. And for $10, you can become a friend of the library. And as people have, it doesn't mean to say that you have to attend the meetings. It's sort of like being a BFF, you can just do it on the side. Um, but we want to connect with providing support as we move into this exciting phase. And so I would encourage you to pick up a brochure out there. And if there aren't any, um, you can look at it online as well or go to the library. When you're going to borrow all these beautiful books? Okay. <laughs> okay. All right, thank you. Thank you. We'll lead you and thank you so much. That was Dame Fiona Kidman speaking to Jane Forrest Waghorn at the 2021 Marlborough Book Festival. A big thanks to all the writers who have supported the festival, as well as the audiences that attended in person or listened online. If you'd like to learn more about the event, head over to marlaborabookfest.co.nz. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>